lot of people got a lot to say, but the truth comes out when you hear it from people who have lived experience. It's important for us because it helps us to claim our personal power and remove stigmas because, you know, especially in these days and times, it could happen to anybody. And so doing work with the project helps people like me, formerly incarcerated people, to have a voice to a wider audience. Good morning. This is Epicenter NYC. We connect our communities to news, information, and each other. I'm Andrea Pineda Salgado. In 2018, Mayor Bill de Blasio agreed to close the jail on Rikers Island, and come 2027, it will no longer exist. Four controversial borough-based jails will take its place. Over the past year, three organizations, Freedom Agenda, Create Forward, and the Humanities Action Lab, have been working together to create the Rikers Public Memory Project. And through conversations with the community, the project was shaped into three pillars, to remember, to repair, and to redress. Regina Campbell is the Director of Oral History and Engagement for the Rikers Public Memory Project. We spoke about the goal of elevating stories of those most impacted by Rikers and why it's important to interrupt to humanizing narratives about those who were harmed. My name is Regina Campbell. I'm the Director of Oral History and Engagement for the Rikers Public Memory Project. And um, the project started back in 2018 after or as part of the Close Rikers campaign, once Mayor de Blasio had finally agreed to close Rikers, three different organizations, the founders of three different organizations, decided to come together and think about how Rikers should be remembered, and what should be remembered about Rikers. So they spent a year doing community engagement, going around and having town hall meetings um, to ask the community and people that have been directly impacted by Rikers these questions. And from those conversations, the Rikers Public Memory Project was started. And it was very clear from people that like they didn't want a place like Alcatraz Island, but it was really important to create a space for education and for healing um, and justice. And so three different elements of the projects, um, the project came about, and that is to remember, um, repair, and then redress which is like our reparative justice initiative that basically documents the public health impacts of Rikers and advocates for reinvestment in these different harmed communities. And the work that we do is to collect and make visible the stories of people most impacted by Rikers. And we're trying to mobilize action towards repairing its generational harms, interrupting some of these dehumanizing narratives about people harmed by Rikers. And so that's really our focus of the project. And can you tell me um, the importance of it? So one reason why it's really important is that we want to make sure that as we preserve Rikers history, it's told through the voices of directly impacted people. We want to ensure that the narrative, who drives the narrative is not like the city or Department of Corrections, those that have actually done harm. Um, they, we don't. We want to make sure that they're not the ones that are driving the narrative and telling the history. We also feel like by preserving a history told through the voices of directly impacted, we work to prevent racial disparities. Thinking about like who owns the narratives about Rikers, 
um, who educates the larger public and who analyzes its lessons for future policy, right? So it's really important that the voices of people directly impacted do. Um, it's really interesting uh, in doing this work, the number of people I talk to who still refer to Rikers Island as a prison, right? And you and I both know it's not a prison, it's a series of jails. And, and if you speak to Rikers Island being a jail, you know, housing people who have not been yet convicted of a crime, or if they have their Senate service serving less than a year, it should put it in a different context, you know, because often the narrative is like, these are hardened criminals who deserve all of the ill treatment and mistreatment. So, you know, there's two, two things to look at. It's like, one, nobody deserves to be treated inhumane, regardless of what you're accused of. But two, we're talking about people who've been accused and not convicted, right? So the idea that you can spend years, you know, with access, without access to food and medical attention for something that you allegedly did and haven't been found guilty of. I think when I have conversations with people and bring that out, they're like, oh, really? I didn't know that. So that's, you know, part of educating the larger public about what's happening at Rikers Island. So that's really important. And speaking a little bit more about the exhibit, can you tell us a little bit more about that and what kinds of installations we can find in it? Like with the creation of the Rikers Public Memory Project, where we spent a year having community conversations about how the project should be designed, we did that as well with the multimedia exhibit. We had a co-design process that we worked with the design team, as well as community members that have been directly impacted by Rikers. And we had a series of meetings to think about who are our audience, what we want our audience to learn, and in what shape and form will it happen. There are roughly 10 elements that will have a physical element that will tour around the five boroughs of New York City, but that will also have an online experience as well. One I mentioned was the audio bus tour. Another is a memorial quilt that memorializes people who have lost their lives due to Rikers Island. Another is, uh, it's called a series called Portraits from Rikers, and it would be a portrait with a QR code um, where you can listen to people's oral histories. Another element is a I Survived Rikers By, where community members who have been detained at Rikers, who have spent time at Rikers, can um, submit like their, what was something that they used or needed to survive their time at Rikers. So, you know, some people with their Bible, some people was being able to draw and do artwork. Some people, you know, there's a number of different items that people have shared. Um, there are postcards that people can complete calling for the closure of Rikers. And I know I'm forgetting some things, but those are the, the items that come to mind immediately. Our goal is to open the exhibit, have our launch in 2024. I also spoke to Anna Pastorosa, whose son, Jairo Pastorosa, was incarcerated for six years. Anna hopes this project will help people understand that Rikers did not only impact the inmates, but also their families. My name is Anna Pastoresa. Uh, my son was incarcerated at Rikers Island in 2010. He kept staying there years after years, and um, I had never been involved in the criminal justice system or anything like that in my life before. So I had no idea 
what was happening and why he was being held without a trial for so long. He ended up staying on Rikers Island for six years and he was never given a trial. He was so broken down after six years of abuse and inhumane treatments that he just accepted a plea deal. He, he accepted a 10-year sentence. I became involved about when he was uh, almost on his five, five to six years into his incarceration, I realized that something was very wrong because see, I'm an immigrant. So I did study the constitution, the amendments and all of that to pass the test to become a naturalized US citizen. And I knew that what I had studied did not match what was happening to him. So anyway, uh, after the fifth year that he was still incarcerated, I was becoming really angry. And I thought that it was really bad because I didn't know how, what to do. And I realized I have to do something. I can't just go to therapy or talk about my misery. I have to act. And thank God uh, I did meet through somebody else who had a similar situation like mine. Um, a neighbor told me the to me, she introduced me to uh, Glenn Martin, who, uh, who was the founder of Just Leadership USA at the time. And at the time he was, he was starting a campaign to close Rikers. So when I told him my situation, I was almost six years that my son was incarcerated. He told me that I should be part of the close Rikers campaign. It was, my, it was March, um, 2016, and I remember that at that time, my son had been beaten, had been kept in intake for a week with no food, no showers. He, he, was, he was in really bad shape at that point. And it seems that the judge and his own, his own attorney and uh, prosecution were not even phased by his face looking all black and blues. seemed that it, for them it was normal, I guess, and I thought it was not. When you would talk to your son, how would he describe what he was going through? The worst part is something he didn't even have to describe because I would hear it through the phone. That was what really shocked me the most. Not so much what he told me that, you know, he told me, yeah, I was in intake for a week. He wouldn't make, he wouldn't go into details that he was beaten. He was, so much was going on that he sometimes he wouldn't tell me everything. But the worst part is that when I'm talking to him, I would hear screaming, yelling in the background. So I knew there was something really bad going on back there, but I, I wouldn't ask too many questions because every time I spoke to him, there was a, a new story, a new abuse, a new, they did this to that, they did that to that person. You know, it was always horrible story after horrible stories. Is your son still serving the 10-year the sentence? No, no, my son is out. He's been home. He came back home. Uh, in 2019. My son's case, it's just a one-time incident that happened in his life. He didn't have any records or he had, he was never arrested in, in his life. He, he, you know, that was just a one-time incident. And that's why when he came out, he just focused on continuing college and he graduated. And then his parole was fine and he was released and, uh, and he's out and he's home and he's doing okay. I'm not going to say he's doing fine because he has a baggage of trauma. He has a lot of issues, psychological issues for what went on there. He suffers from claustrophobia now. He has a lot of trauma. I have them too, but, you know, from what I went through, because I was incarcerated as well. We were all incarcerated, not just him. That's how it is.
And how did you get involved with the Rikers Justice Project? That kind of started right away, like almost parallel to the closing Rikers campaign. I thought that it's good to have some kind of memory of Rikers, not just the ugly, creepy memory that will be left there for decades and centuries because that's the main memory that Rikers will give just when they hear the, the word Rikers is a very, very bad memory. But I, was I got involved because I, I thought that we'd also have to remember all the people that died there. It's not only about, it's a bad island, they're doing this, they're abusing people. They're, yeah, they're killing people, they're abusing people and these people need to be remembered. And the people who suffer there need to be remembered. It's not about remembering only the bad ones and the criminals, which to me, they are the Department of Correction. Those are the criminals. I thought it was good to have this public Rikers memory project because we need to remember the people who suffer there, not just the people who suffer there, but their family, their families as well. Also, a lot of the people who were there, including my son, were talented people. They were people that not everybody was just, even though they were treated like abusively, they're not people to be thrown away. These are humans that made a mistake or maybe they, they didn't even make a mistake. Some of them, they were just there. For, for by mistake and they shouldn't have been there at all and a lot of them like my son they're talented people or people that they they have a lot to offer and they're just locked in there wasting their life away because that's what Rikers Island do they lock you there and they just make you waste away my son was an artist and during his incarceration on Rikers Island he actually painted a lot and made a lot of drawings he would get just maybe a few pencils about this half of the finger long and um he was able to paint using Kool-Aid, using candies, using coffee grinds, ink from newspapers. He made color, however way he could make color and paint. Um, they wouldn't even give him enough papers to paint on. Uh, he painted on bed sheets. He ripped bed sheets and turned them into canvas and painted on those in however way he could. He told me that that was his, the best escape he had painting. He said that that saved him. Like, would you mind telling me why it's important for, for example, an organization to feature people's own stories rather than other people telling them or what the media might say about Rikers? Why is that important? Well, it is very important to tell your own story because especially me, when I tell my story, I get passionate about it. By the time stories get transcribed by others, they lose content or they lose the passion they lose a lot of and sometimes it gets distorted not purposely but a bit different than what it really was the meaning so it is very important for people to tell their stories and each one has a different story even though it all revolves around the same issue also the stories are stories of incarcerated formerly incarcerated people my story is different than what my son's story would be because I'm, I'm the mother my story about Rikers is like is the story as a visitor, is what I went through as a visitor. My son doesn't know that part because he was inside. So it, that's why it's important to have everybody's story because everybody has a different perspective of what was really happening at the time. What I hear from him, from my son, when he tells me his story, it's like, wow, you know, even though I'm aware of what was going on, my story is, is from another side, from the outside. But I have my own story too, my own traumas and my own baggage. For six years, 
And then you hear another mother that may be going to the same island, visiting her son, and she has a different story. Her story is now another perspective, but they are all horrifying perspectives. They are all very sad stories. And uh, really they could be so avoidable. That's the worst part is that it's so unnecessary to put all these people through all of that. It just for, for waiting for trial, majority of them waiting for trial. And then he got more traumatized by being locked up and then abused, abused, abused. So it's like, what did they obtain out of my son's incarceration? Do they think that that was justice? No, because they only made him worse. He has a lot of traumas and problems and issues. It's tougher to get back and, and be part of society when you come out of a place like Rikers Island. It's really hard to come back to society and, and blend in with everybody else. You can't. You get completely destroyed. It's just really, really a horrifying place. It's unbelievable that it exists in this country. Like Anna, Marion Rodriguez believes people should learn about Rikers from the people that were directly affected by it. Marion was incarcerated at Rikers for a year in 2002. For her, the Rikers Public Memory Project has been an outlet to claim her personal power and remove stigmas. I'm Marion Rodriguez. I was uh, incarcerated on Rikers in 2002 to 2003. I don't recall how I was introduced to the Rikers Public Memory Project. Probably so. I've been organizing for 20 years. I've been home for 20 years. And from the moment I walked out of the gate, I have been organizing for everything against mass incarceration. As an organizer, we sit at many tables and someone introduced the Rikers Public Memory Project to me. And I did their first interview for the, you know, for the project. Since that time, I've been involved with them since that first interview. Can you tell me a little more about why it's important to tell your story? I, I guess maybe what drew you to the project in the first place? You know, there's plenty of uh, stories and stuff written about Rikers historians, you know, people who study scholars, right? You know, a lot of people got a lot to say, but the truth comes out when you hear it from people who have lived experience. So I don't, you know, I, I appreciate that organizations want to get to the truth. They want to hear it from our voices and that's important. It's important for us because it helps us to claim our personal power and remove stigmas because, you know, especially in these days and times, it could happen to anybody. And so doing work with the project helps people like me, formerly incarcerated people, to have a voice to a wider audience rather than speaking to just each other as we do these organizing events. We, with, through the Rikers Public Memory Project, we get to speak to a wider audience. And I really appreciate that about the project. Can you explain like what are some misconceptions people have at Rikers versus the truth that you've seen and experienced? The level of violence and trauma is constant. People don't realize that. And I'll just speak about Rikers because that's my experience. The level of trauma is all day, every day. People have no clue that that's what it's about. People think, people may, you know, may have this perception that, oh, you know, they want to go to jail, three hats and a cot, they'll say something like that, right? Like people go to jail to get, get up off the street. You know what I mean? Like, it's a good thing. It's not nothing good 
about going to jail and people who go through the cycle and go back to jail is because of underlying problems, root issue problems that are not being addressed in our societies, in our communities. You know what I mean? And I think sometimes people think like, damn, you've been locked up 72 times. You must like going to jail. No, nobody likes going to jail. It's that it's hard to live in this society and this community for a lot of people. And can you tell me a little bit more about what you've shared in the project? I'm a human being first, you know what I mean? That moment in my life that I committed the crime that got me locked up, it was a moment in my life. I'm, I'm not defined by that. There's many, many, I've been on this earth for 50, 58 years. You know, that was a year out of my life. And, and, and the struggle that led me to jail, right? The struggle in my life, in my mind, in my community that led me to jail is really what's important. And then after going to jail, how I changed my life because I became a totally different person. Jail changed who I am. What is one thing that you would like people to know about your story? I think that um, things need to change and people shouldn't be criminalized and locked up. There could have been an alternative for me um, versus pleading to a felony. That to me is, is the biggest problem that I have with my particular case on Rikers Island. I pled guilty to a felony. Like, you know, they make offers to you, right? They say, take, take six months and five years probation. And um, it just, the way the system is built, you know, for someone who doesn't know anything about law and doesn't know how to talk to a lawyer and doesn't know the ramifications of pleading to a felony conviction that it follows you for the rest of your life. That's tragic. That's my story. And that part of it is tragic because had I known then what I know today, I would not have pled guilty to a felony. You know, about my experience, what I would want people to know is that um, the whole system is set up for failure. They want me to just fail the whole rest of my life. You know, when I left, they said, see you when you get back. I haven't been back. I told you, I haven't been back since I was released. And I'm like an odd man out, but I shouldn't have even been locked up, in my opinion. So this whole system of incarcerating people for degradation, homelessness, drug addiction, you know, the, the various systemic problems that we have in society and, and we lock people up, it's just fucked up. It's just a, it's just a, not a good system. One of the things that I thought was really interesting that they're going to have in, in an exhibit um, for the Rikers Memory Project is something that, like items that helped people survive during their time in Rikers. Do you have uh, such an item? Yeah, so the specific, it wasn't a specific item, but it was a specific person. And so I'll just tell you a little story. We don't sit on other people's beds in Rikers. And I don't know about other jails. We do not sit on other people. That's like, you don't do that. And so my counselor, when it was getting close to my discharge, I had a counselor and um, she came and sat on my bed. I was like, who is this girl? Where did she come from? You know, she did have an ID on, but anyway, she sat on my bed and she looked at my locker. And my locker had pictures of my family members on it. And so she explained who she was and that she was working on discharge planning, blah, blah, blah. And so I introduced her to my family. I introduced her to my people. You know, my daughter graduated high school while I was locked up. My nephew was born. You know, I had some really significant life events. And so um, 
That was significant because one, I allowed her to sit on my bed. Number two, I introduced her to my people, right? Like I let her into my world. Well, come to find out after I left, I had a party, you know, later on, whatever for my birthday or something. And I invited her. We stayed in touch. She was still in touch today, 20 years later. So she made a big difference, maybe not a thing, but she was a person who made a big difference in um, my life incarcerated as well. A lot of the other women who helped me to learn how to jail, uh, meaning how to buy commissary, what to buy, you know, like I didn't know nothing about jailing. So the other women that I was incarcerated with were extremely helpful and loving in our worst scenario. We were at our worst, all of us, right? But the other women were really, I'm still friends with a lot of them today. And when records close us down, uh, what do you want people to remember about it? They should remember all of us who experienced trauma and we should count it by the seconds in a day. They should remember that that is a trauma-filled place. We were traumatized every second that we had to live there. Regina Campbell says that you have to remember the past to not repeat the past. The Rikers Public Memory Project website provides a glimpse of what the jail was like during the pandemic's peak and the history of the island. In 2024, the Rikers Public Memory Project will have an exhibition that will make its way around New York City and teach New Yorkers about what went on in Rikers. The more people learn, the more they can advocate for change. Visit RikersMemoryProject.org for more. That's all for today. Thanks for listening. And thanks for supporting us as we do our best to support our community. We couldn't do it without you. For more stories like this, visit us at epicenter-nyc.com. And if you're not already a member, sign up today by using the link in our show notes. Our intro music is All the Pretty Horses by Karavika. You can find more of their music on their website linked to in our podcast description.